the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, some inspirational stories from the Olympics. We're going to talk about those. And then if you could talk to yourself 25 years ago, what advice would you give? You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on a Tuesday afternoon. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Aubrey Sampson. Glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, how are you doing today? It's a Tuesday. How are things going? Things are going great this Tuesday. How about you, Brian? Really good. Really good. I want to jump into some Olympic stories because we I, I enjoyed yeah, it. Yesterday we, yesterday we did the Olympics. Today we're going to go the Olympics. I thought about starting the show with a recap of you watching The Bachelorette. <laughs> we're going to get to that. We, we'll today. get to that. Don't worry. But I feel Look, like more people care about the Olympics. Sadly, I don't know why, but probably that makes more sense to talk a, about the Olympics. A sad cultural statement might be that. What you said may not be true. You might be right about that, Ryan. More people might have watched The Bachelorette last night than the Olympics. But I'm I'm excited to get your Bachelorette update. We'll do that later in the show. Okay, I've got three Olympic stories, and we're going to do the pastor thing today. Okay, okay, okay. we're going to make uh, we're going to make uh, we're going to use these as sermon illustrations. Love we're going to say, okay, what can we learn yes. from these Olympic stories? So okay. I'm going to tell the stories of okay. what three different Olympic stories, and I want you. Uh, I get some sermon prep on. on. Okay, there you go. go. First one is the most obvious. It's the biggest story. Simone Biles, who uh, dropped out, as we've talked about incessantly, she for uh, she had the twisties, some mental health issues that kind of stopped her from being able to compete. She dropped out of the all around the team competition, every individual competition until the balance beam, which happened overnight. Uh, She competed in the balance beam. Uh, and it was a pretty flawless performance. And Simone Biles won the bronze medal. Huge uh, awesome. smile on her face as she completed it. Uh, what do we learn? What is the takeaway from Simone Biles competing and meddling in the balance beam? Oh, okay. I thought we were doing a three-point sermon on all of them, but we're no, going no, no. one Each at a time. Yes. Okay. You know, I I think the beautiful thing about this is there are always second chances, right? Mm. We can step back for a time, but those who wait on the Lord will have their strength renewed like eagles. <laughs> eagle. I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but I mean it. I think there is something really powerful that she stepped back when she yeah. needed to, that she owned that moment of self-care and soul care and body care and then said, but you know what? I can do it again. And that she competed and meddled is pretty phenomenal. I feel like it's a beautiful, beautiful kind of redemption story, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's an, there's something about perseverance here mm-hmm. too, right? She had to be afraid when she got up on the balance beam. I know she said the balance beam was the one apparatus where she didn't seem to be affected, but there had to be doubt in her mind, right? Yeah. And some fear, uh, but she kind of powered through. And there's also something about the support of a team, uh, they went mm-hmm. nuts when she stuck the landing That's and awesome. won the bronze. There's something awesome. about having a team with you. Uh, to cheer you on. Okay, that's the first one. Second story was from, I think, two days ago. Uh, Canadian diver Pamela Ware 
So you may have seen this clip. Uh, Pamela Ware was trying to get into the finals. So she needed a certain score and she was going to do a, a move that even the commentator said this could be spectacular. Okay. Like she was going for it. She, you know, she's on that board uh, that's bouncy. So she bounces up, yep. bounces up again, and then she jumps and something immediately goes wrong and she just jumps and lands on her feet. She doesn't ah. do any flips. Ah. She doesn't do anything. She got the following score. A zero point zero. Oh no! What ha- did, did? Is there explanation of what happened? I think her timing just got completely off, and oh, so she bounced, and like it was just kind of like she couldn't. You know, it's a split second thing, yeah. so she couldn't do anything. Yeah. After her failed dive, though, she said, "I'll learn from this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going anywhere." And she also said, "I'm not going to give up." What is the takeaway from the Canadian diver? Uh, who did a jump like our kids do at the pool uh, over the summer. <laughs> you know, I think about how we we talk about on the show actually a lot, like um, success is a series of little mistakes, mm. right? And that sometimes God allows us to make little mistakes or experience little failures on the way to what he has for us. We see that through scripture all the time, like, characters in scripture go the wrong direction or make the wrong choice, but all of it God ends up using for their good and his glory. And now these aren't always massive mistakes, right? But little moments where we fail forward into who we're supposed to become. And, you know, I I think I think this is one of those examples where, man, failure can destroy you if your right. identity is in the thing you failed at. But if you remember the words of the psalmist that our heart and our flesh may fail, but God is the strength of our heart. God is our portion forever. Mm. That failure doesn't have to be the thing that defines you. So I love this attitude that she's like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not giving up. I'm learning from this. I think that's right. some, that's really, that's true for all of us in whatever we face. Yeah. And her failure. Failure, let's be honest, was spectacular and it was on the Olympics. Well, stage. I mean, let's remember that, that she's not. Yeah, that she has gotten high enough in her field that she's at the Olympics. So, right, you right. know, it's not a failure, really. But she's a little bit the butt of a joke and it, that'll go away till the next one, you mm-hmm, know. But mm-hmm. uh, I do love the idea of, hey, uh, failure can either define you and you could never try again mm-hmm. or you could say, hey. Yeah, I failed. I failed spectacularly. Right. Uh, but I, I'm going to go for it again, and I'm going to keep going. I like how you put that life if is she, kind of uh, multiple failures along the way. If she meddles in the future, this is going to be a great like yes. Disney movie. Yes, yes. Don't you, you do, think? You do need to tweet. I mean, you do need to Google and just see the jump because it's a spectacular failure. Oh, bless her uh, heart. It's bless good. Her it's heart. good. But what we a love great you, Pamela. attitude. Yep. What a great attitude. All right. Last one overnight. Uh, or last night, there was the 400 meter hurdle race won by Karsten, Karsten Warholm of Tokyo. Uh, he defeated, uh, an, a United States guy by the name of Ray Benjamin. And here's why I want to talk about this one. They are calling it the greatest hurdling race in history. Wow. As Karsten Warholm beat the world record by three quarters of a second. He just, which in track is a ton. Yeah. And the guy who came in second, Ray Benjamin, also uh, set the world record or would have set the world record if not for Warholm next to him. And the amazing thing about this race is they're next to each other and they are so far ahead of everybody else, but they're right next to each other. And it became just this kind of one-on-one battle mm. where they are like their rivals. They go against each other a lot. 
and and they are just pushing each other. It, it is something about that. They you can tell they're not thinking about the world record. They're just giving every ounce in their being to beat the guy next to them. Uh, and Karsten Warholm, uh, because of that push, annihilated the world record. And Ray Benjamin also beat the world record and won the silver medal. Wow. There's a spiritual truth there. Tell me about it. I mean, I think there's a few. One of the things that I think about is later on this week, I believe on Friday, we're having Davey Blackburn on. Mm -hmm. He's the founder of Nothing is Wasted Ministries. And one of the things that I've heard him talk about before, and maybe he'll talk about it on the show, is that um, in seasons of hardship or grief, just like we see this in National Geographic documentaries a lot, um, the enemy tries to isolate us, right? And so, like, it, when people are or, or he, talking about animals, like, the the enemy, the predator tries to separate the animal from the herd, make it vulnerable so he can attack, right? So then the mm-hmm. opposite of that is true, that when we have accountability around us or partners with us or people that are spurring us on, like, then we we endure, then we succeed. I think this is like, I don't know, I think this is really cool that if it weren't for the other they may have not done as well as they right. did, but they spurred each other on. And then I also think about, you know, kind of, you know, being really pastoral here makes me think of Hebrews that were surrounded by this yes. great cloud of witnesses. They're cheering us on so that we can run the race with endurance. I feel like this is a beautiful picture of that. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think you use the right word to word to spur one another on to love and good deeds like these guys just completely pushed one another. And we need people like that in yeah, our lives who are going to push us on, cheer us on. I know they're rivals. So the, the right, <laughs> imagery right. breaks down a little bit here. They're not teammates and they were trying to beat each other. Uh, but just to see how much better they were by being pushed by, by a rival, by somebody right next to them uh, was really impressive. So that's the Olympics. Uh, you could always find spiritual truths even in these fun games, and uh, they will continue again tonight. Well, coming up next, Tom DeVries is going to join us. Uh, he, Tom is the president of the Global Leadership Network. We're going to talk to him about the Global Leadership Summit that is coming up Thursday and Friday. We're going to talk to Tom DeVries next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, something you and I have both attended in our in our mm-hmm. lives at some point in the last couple of years is the Global Leadership right. Summit. It's coming up this Thursday and Friday. And this year, you can attend the Global Leadership Summit in person and online. So the Global Leadership Summit includes over 15 world-class faculty. Some people I love to listen to, Craig Grishel, Malcolm Gladwell, and others. And Amazing. with all that in mind, we are excited to uh, bring on and chat with Tom DeVries, the president of the Global Leadership Network. Tom, how are you doing today? Hey, doing great, Brian. Great to be able to be with you and Aubrey. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Tom, I want to look back before we look forward at this at this year's summit. Help people understand the impact of the Global Leadership Summit over its history, because the impact of it has been so far reaching. Help people understand its impact. 
Yeah, you know, this is uh, actually will be the 26th summit this wow. year, and uh, which is really amazing when you just think about uh, longevity. But uh, longevity also then allows greater impact. Mm-hmm. And uh, we not only have uh, the summit, which has been live two days here in South Barrington, but then uh, really goes around the world. And we're 110 countries, and we translate the summit into 55 different languages, amazing. and uh, we'll reach uh, well over 300,000 people this year. Mm. That is awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about this year's summit in particular, Tom? What can people look forward to? Yeah, when, uh, you know, certainly uh, having lived through uh, this last uh, 17 or 18 months with a pandemic and senses of uh, crisis and chaos, uh, as well as uncertainty, uh, you look and you recognize uh, the importance of leadership and decision-making, but also then uh, in each of the spheres, each of us has our own sphere of influence. And how do we look at that influence and steward it and also help grow it in positive kinds of ways? And this year, the summit is going to be on uh, August 5 and 6. And uh, we do have some uh, really wonderful speakers that are going to be here, like uh, Craig Grishel and, uh, as uh, Brian said, Malcolm Gladwell will be here. Uh, Julia Funt, uh, Dr. Francesca Gino from uh, Harvard will also be a part. Henry Cloud will be talking about uh, mental health. And uh, Jamie Kern-Lima uh, also from uh, It Cosmetics. And uh, just some really, really great people talking about their experiences in influencing and leadership and the difference that it really makes. Amazing. Yeah. And- uh, Tom, one thing I've always enjoyed about the Leadership Summit is uh, it's kind of this mix of pastors and speakers, but also, like you said, CEOs and people who have you know, written books or started businesses. Uh, help people understand, like, like, how much of this is from a Christian side and how much is it, even if somebody out there is not a Christ follower, to go, you know what, these are good just to learn how to be a better leader and lead my organization. Talk to both of those right now. Yeah, you know, I think what we've been able to do with the uh, Global Leadership Summit is really provide a a bridge for people to bring uh, colleagues, co-workers, uh, many of whom, uh, as you shared, are not Christ followers, but can go into an an environment that is uh, non-threatening. And uh, often that's a church. We're in uh, 535 different host sites throughout the country this year, and 85% of them will be churches. Uh, but for many of uh, Christians who are in the business environment or government or education, they can bring a colleague and uh, know that they're going to be able to uh, hear about value-based transformational leadership that often uh, finds its roots in Scripture, uh, but people can begin to apply in the different areas of their life, whether they're a Christ follower or not. And what mm-hmm. we found then is that uh, it opens the door to future spiritual conversations, whether mm-hmm. they be two days, two weeks, or two uh, Two months later, and often many people come to faith in Christ out of those follow-up kind of conversations. That is fantastic. And Tom, I love that phrase, value-based transformational leadership. Do you have any particular stories of an organization or a leader who was changed because of their attendance at the summit? <laughs> Absolutely, and and uh, numbers. I think it's it's one of the uh, the things I enjoy most about being the president of the Global Leadership Network is I, I talk about being able to have a front row seat uh, to the transformation that God is doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be sharing a, a story about uh, Rebecca Bender. And Rebecca Bender was, um, at one point in time, uh, was 
caught up in the human trafficking environment Mm -hmm. in uh, Las Vegas, and she was able to break free, and uh, then it was sitting in a seat at at a Global Leadership Summit in Oregon, uh, where God began to kind of speak into her heart, and she began to have a a grander vision of maybe how she could help others break free Mm -hmm. uh, from that same experience, and she started an entire new ministry uh, as a result of that, and we're going to be sharing her story this year uh, at the summit. Another one is uh, Rinaldo, who was uh, right in uh, prison here in Danville, Illinois. And uh, he watched the summit for the first time from prison. Uh, He was in prison, uh, and his sentence was um, without the opportunity for parole. He was sentenced to life in prison. And uh, he began to start a ministry through the, the Global Leadership Summit in his prison that ultimately began began to impact uh, others of those that were with him there in that prison in Danville. Mm -hmm. And he was then able to actually get up for parole and was freed and uh, now continues that ministry on the outside uh, and is no longer in prison. And he points to that experience uh, through the GLS as well. Oh, that's great. And Tom, let me, uh, as we start to close this up, let me ask you what's kind of a really big kind of broad question, but someone like you who like your life is devoted to leadership and talking about leadership, maybe for people who might not have thought this through before, why does it matter? Why does it matter to talk about leadership? Yeah, I I think that that's so important. And it's one of the things that we talk about, Brian, is that everyone has influence. And it doesn't matter whether it's in a family environment or a school environment. It can be in a business or church environment, uh, education. And it really is a, a matter of beginning to say, what do we want that influence to look like, and how do we want to see that influence grow often in uh, in positive ways? And it's as we look at uh, how you then uh, kind of exhibit or execute on leadership, we find that it can happen in three different areas. One is leading yourself. And uh, one reason to come to the summit is just to look and say, as I lead myself, how can I do a better job of that? And Mm -hmm. what might that look like? Another is in leading others. And often we find ourselves in team situations or in small groups at uh, work or in school or different places like that. And how can we be uh, a better teammate and how we then bring influence into that work environment? Or how do you lead an organization? And sometimes you find yourself as you grow in leadership, having greater and greater responsibility. And uh, how do you make good decisions uh, in that environment and uh, begin to, again, exercise influence in positive ways so that we can make a difference in our world? That's good. Again, go to globalleadership.org slash summit. That's globalleadership.org slash summit. There you'll be able to register. You're also going to be able to just see the lineup. And Aubrey, I'm looking at the, it's the, the people who are speaking. It's going to be mm-hmm. really well worth your time. As Tom said, you can you can go in person. There's other sites you can watch from. Uh, you can watch online. There's all sorts of ways. So go to globalleadership.org slash summit. Tom, uh, I hope this week goes great for you guys. We'll be praying for you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, great. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks so much, Aubrey. Grateful for your prayers and your partnership with us. Absolutely. Our pleasure. And you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. 
We share this often on the show. Both you and I are pastors. Yes. Um, and we both have started the churches that we yes, are a part of we have. In, in, very, in very specific areas. Mm-hmm. But we also live in an area. I, I've recognized this a few years ago. Not a few. Now we're going on a bunch. When I came out to Wheaton and then when I started pastoring after Wheaton, uh, where I came from on the East Coast, uh, I grew up in New Jersey. And where I grew up, there were no mega churches. Okay, right. Like the, yeah. It wasn't a thing. Yeah. And maybe it is now. I don't know. Maybe 20 years later, maybe there are mega churches now where I grew up. But back then when I grew up there, mega churches weren't a thing. But out here, you and I could name a half dozen, oh, a right. dozen, even right. more right. mega churches. And it sets up this weird dynamic as pastors and just as congregants of uh, do I invest in a church that might be smaller and not have all the bells and whistles and everything, but is in my community? Or do I drive 45 minutes, you know, and go to uh, this big church or that big church that has the best music and the best preaching and the best programming uh, and all of that stuff? I think you and I both feel uh, a a pull towards local because that's what we do. That's what we've done. But maybe help people out there who might be like, yeah, I'm not really sure how, what I think about that or even how to process that question. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few ways to think about this conversation. One, let's just under the umbrella of go to church. Okay. (laughs) So wherever you go, wherever you find yourself just drawn to by the spirit of God, you have permission and freedom to go there. So go there. That said, if we're thinking about the fact that we are called on mission by God, we are God's sent people, then the value of being part of a local church is that you can get to know your neighbors, invite them to your local church, that with your neighbors that go to the same church as you, you can be on mission loving other neighbors. You can be invested in the local schools, the local restaurants. Like There is something I think really powerful that God has placed each of us purposefully where we Mm -hmm. are in order to be good neighbors with the gospel in our hands. And if we're doing that with a community of sisters and brothers that we're at church with, um, it's more powerful when we do it together. I'll just say when Kevin and I were first married, we were actually driving. We were doing this thing where we were driving far away to a church out in Evanston because we loved it. We loved the music. We loved the pastor. We loved the um, whole experience. And we thought for a time, okay, if this is our church, we have to move to Evanston. Like we can't be committed to small groups. We can't be committed to church, um, you know, events because it's so far away. This is ridiculous. Mm. What we ended up realizing is, okay, maybe we're not meant to move our home. We're meant to get involved in a local church. And that's what we ended up doing. We ended up getting involved in a church in our community and it made all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's important. You bring up a good point that it's not sinful to right. go to <laughs> right. the big church. And as you and I both have you know, we've got teenagers and preteens. Like, I get it. Like, I get the draw to being like, hey, if I drive an extra, we do this in the suburbs too, right? We'll drive an extra 20 minutes for this or for that. 100%. Yeah. I do get it. But there is something about the holistic nature of the church of of worshiping around people who also you Mm -hmm. might run into at the grocery store uh, and you might live within a neighborhood. And 
the weird part becomes, I was reading this story, uh, a random blog post I found uh, from a guy who runs a campus crusade. Uh, it's now called Crew uh, at James Madison. And he literally talked about how they had this pastor from 30 minutes away come and speak to some of the college kids who were driving to his church. And the, the pastor said, don't come to our church. Go to one <laughs> oh, of wow. Them, go to one of them around here. Wow. And that takes some guts. Like, again, you and I are pastors. I'm not sure I... I'm not sure I've ever told anybody, hey, it would be better for you. Like, <laughs> if I think you of go your to story, a different church, right? <laughs> I think of your story. If I was the person in Evans, the pastor in Evanston, I don't know that I ever would have said, hey, Kevin and Aubrey, it's probably better if you start <laughs> going to the church there. Right. Like that, that is the hard part. But what are, uh, with that withstanding, uh, what are some of the practical benefits of staying local. What are you touched on some of them, but what let, let's hammer down. What are some of the uh, actual benefits of staying local, even if that church is smaller and maybe doesn't have everything you're looking for? Yeah. I mean, I think one is a, a benefit is evangelism, right? Because sometimes I think evangelism is like us one-on-one -on -one going up to people we barely know and telling them about Jesus or inviting them to church. But oftentimes, as most things in our faith, because we have a communal faith, evangelism can be the body of Christ, just loving neighbors well. And so, you, I mean, like, I, I'm just thinking about my own neighborhood right now. The couple on our left go to church with us, mm. and be, we both go to church in the neighborhood. We can walk to our church. And because of that, we have block parties every summer where we're, and I'm thinking of a couple just at the top of the block that goes to church with us. All of us, when we have these block parties, can be very intentional about loving people towards Jesus, inviting them to our local church. Mm -hmm. And that's one really beautiful way where evangelism can happen naturally when you're in Christian church community. When you go to church with people, you live nearby. That's one thing that comes to mind. What about you, Brian? Yeah. And, and I, you brought up small groups before, right? But kind yeah. of under the umbrella of discipleship, like how are we um, pushing one another forward? You can do it when you live a half hour away yeah. from each other. For It just gets really tiring. Right. <laughs> it it's true. Really, it gets exhausting. It gets exhausting. And I think about this article also talks about being a blessing to your community. Like yes. if, if your church is is starting to do things in the community, but it's not your community, there's a kind of a weird um, di dichotomy there of how do I invest in my community while also investing in the church's community? That's mm -hmm. a lot easier to do when that's the same community. Mm -hmm. uh, now, let's be honest. There are certain non-negotiables, right, about a church. Like you want to make sure they uh, they take the Bible seriously. Yes. They're preaching the gospel. They're, they're loving orthodox. people well. Yes. They're orthodox. Like yes. it's not just he jokes at the end of this article. Don't just go find the closest church to your house. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like you still there. There are certain foundations that need to be present. But then look for the church. I would say, and tell me if you think this is good. Okay. Look for the church that meets all those benchmarks. And then is closest to you. And then is nearby. That's good. That's yeah. Good. And, and then is closest. And then go invest in it. If you are, if someone's listening right now, Arby, let's end here. And they go to, you know, the big church that's 45 minutes away. Uh -huh. Would you encourage them to actually leave the church or what uh, would you encourage I, them you to know, do? I, 
I don't think God is that legalistic. And so I would not, especially if they're thriving and especially if they're involved. But I will say this. If you're going to the big church because you're just getting entertained by it, you're sitting in the back, you're not invested in relationships, you're not living on mission, you're not doing any ministry, then I do think that's a question. Should I be involved in a church that's closer to me so that I can actually participate in church community, participate on mission with my church community for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the flourishing of the city I live in. I think it's worth asking that question, certainly. That's really good. So we thought this was an important. A lot of us, hopefully out there, go to church. You don't just lead churches, but you go to church. And we would love for you to just consider this. What, what would it look like to be part of a hyper-local church, even if it's got less of, like I said before, the bells and whistles of yeah. the church that might be 20 minutes 30 minutes away. It's an interesting thing to think about. Well, coming up next, if you could go back in time, Aubrey, we're going to say, how about 25 years? If you could go back 25 oh. years, what would you say? Oh, so you mean I'm only one year old? Gosh, <laughs> I don't know if I can answer this. <laughs> well, all right. We'll go back 20. We'll go back 20, 25 years. What okay, would you okay. say to your younger self? We're going to chat about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, before we get into exactly what we're going to get into, the, the world is awaiting your Bachelorette recap. I'm not even... I'm not... I'm not concerned about what actually happened oh, you're in the not? show. Oh, because that was big, what, Brian. Well, you could that could be part okay, of this. Okay. I really want to know what was going on in your soul uh, yeah. as you were watching right. it. Was your husband there? Yes. And uh, I want to know what it did to your um, to your faith, really. Right. I want to know, like, am I did, still did a Christian? Like you, did you backslide by just watching The Bachelorette? So I want to know all of right. that. But also, if if you need to include what happened, I'm good with that. Yeah, as well. I mean, it's a fair question. Is my soul dying a little bit because I'm watching The Bachelorette? Yes, I would say it is. But I'm not. I'm in. I'm in. It has got I'm me. In. But I will tell you, yes, my husband watched it by my side, and our new children's pastor came over and watched it. So tell <laughs> you something about our church staff maybe um so i like i said before i have not watched the bachelor or the bachelorette since like the first one or two seasons and i mean that i just haven't been into it i i not even really because i'm like this is trash it is definitely trash but just it hasn't held my interest but a couple weeks ago some of the gals were in town for my grad school program and they're a like really into it. And so they wanted to watch it. And I was the only house locally. And so everyone came over, we watched it. And I was like, Oh, no, I like the show. It's really good. But anyway, last night was big because she was down to three bachelors. And it was supposed to be these hometown dates where she takes them home or she goes to their houses, she meets their parents, etc. Right. Um, But all of this was filmed during COVID. So basically, they're on this ranch in New Mexico, and they set up pretend hometowns. It was like a pretend Baltimore, Maryland, a pretend city in Canada. And but their families came in except for one bachelor, his parents didn't approve. So they didn't come in. But here was the kicker, Brian. I'm ready. Front runner self-exited. That's not the word I'm looking for, but he said... Dropped out. Yeah, he said, you know what? He had told this girl he was in love with her. 
he could see her as his wife. And she was like, well, definitely you're one of the guys that's going to get a rose next week. And he was like, no, <laughs> She's playing the game. I don't care about the rose. This is real life. I don't care about the stupid rose. I'm in love with you. Are you in or are you out? And she couldn't answer him. And he said, I'm out. And he left. And the show ended with her sobbing in the bathroom, asking for a plane ticket home, saying she's done with the bachelorette. But here's the thing. Here's what people are talking about online. And we can stop talking about this soon, I promise. Um, no, I'm into this now. Uh, the season ends early. So oh. people have been talking about that since it started. Why does the season end early? Why does the season end early? So there is a thought that she's actually done. Like she's going to leave and not pick a man and that's it. Yeah, I doubt it. There's a little thing called a contract. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. We'll see. I don't know. It's really, really interesting. But I do think it was actually... I mean, there were two things happening in my mind as this guy was quitting the show. One, dude, you're on The Bachelor. Like you, you know, you, you signed yeah, up. For it. Yes, so like, yes, you need yes. to chill out a little bit. I know you have real feelings for her, but then the last thing I'll say, and we'll transition to a more important story, is that um, I appreciated his self respect. Like he had enough self respect to be like, you know what, this is it for me. I'm out. Yeah, no, he self respect. Uh, he went on The Bachelorette. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all. Alrighty. Alrighty. So that, I think we're going to do that every week. I'm, I'm excited to see what it does to your soul as you okay, continue. Okay. See to- if I'm still a Christian at the end of this. Yes. 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 All right. Here's the question we're posing to you. I want you to answer first. Aubrey, if you could talk to your 25 year old self, if you could go back in time and give your 25 year old self some advice. Ooh. Some, okay. Pep talk, okay. Whatever else it might be, a don't do that. Whatever else it might be, what would you what would you tell your twenty five? Oh, self? this is such a massive question. I feel like I want you to answer it first, and then I'm just going to copy what you say. Well, that's not how this game <laughs> is played. that's not how this game is. But all right, but I'll bite. Okay. I'll go. Okay. You know what? I think one of the things I would tell myself, twenty five year old me, I was a youth pastor, but I knew that I wanted to be, uh, you know, a head pastor. I was, uh, and and I think back when you're in your mid twenties. Uh, I think there comes this idea of, I want to be famous. Mm -hmm. I want to be well known. Mm -hmm. I want to have a big church for our line of work. I want to be for your line of work. I want to sell all these books and headline all of this stuff. And I feel like as I've gotten older, uh, I've seen the value in, uh, just kind of, putting one foot in front of the other yeah. and and loving the people in my yeah. church and, and loving my family and spending time with my family doesn't mean I wouldn't like being famous or I wouldn't like sure. this, but, but there's much less of a drive to like change the mm-hmm. world and make my mark globally versus, you know what? I kind of want to make my mark with my kids. Yeah. And I kind of want to yeah. make my mark with my yeah you know, the hundred people around me or whatever else it might be. I think that's what I would tell my 25 year old self. Like don't get caught up in the books you're reading and the Mm. people you're listening to online thinking that's what a success is. I think that's where I'd go. Uh, And I'd probably tell myself, you know what? Worry a little bit less about what other people think about you. And I still struggle with that. Uh, but I, that would probably be it. So that's where I'm going. How about yourself? You know, I think that's really, that's a really good word. I think I would say something similar that it's really not like, like God is going to make your dreams come true in ways that you didn't expect. But ultimately it's not about your name or your fame. It's about the name of Jesus. And I think that's what I would say to my younger self, like keep the name of Jesus and keep just that steady race 
running the race, like keep that at the center of what you do and don't get swayed by what other people think. Don't get swayed by the games people play or competition or comparison. Just stay faithful to God. And like you said, to your family, to your local church, I, I feel like it's not even staying small. It's like just learning what's actually important in life and what matters. And then I think the other thing I would say is it will be okay. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was 18, I was so overwhelmed by like what boys liked me and didn't like me. And I had actually experienced two instances of sexual assault by the time I was 18. Mm. And I was just overrun by shame and pain and heartache. And I was like, I would say in a pretty dark place, even though I was walking with God. And I could never have foreseen the beautiful redemptive story God would write in my life and the beautiful Mm. redemptive adventure God would take me on. And so I think just like, hey, you will be okay. This is hard, but God is faithful. Man, I felt that so often as a youth pastor. Like I remember telling Mm. some of our leaders, I feel like our primary job is to help high school students understand that there's life after high That's school. That's it, right? <laughs> like there's, yeah. there's something yeah. else uh, to come. And I, I you know, I, I think I would tell myself again, um, don't take yourself so seriously. Mm. Like have fun, put people around you who are going to be there for you. Uh, I would also remind myself 20, 25 years ago, that when, when you see this little thing pop up called Amazon, maybe buy <laughs> Invest some Invest in it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, maybe just maybe just. Do that. I think uh, in my first book, Overcomer, I actually wrote a little chapter at the end that's a letter to my younger self. And one oh, of the things awesome. that you just made me think of when you said, don't take yourself too seriously. I remember really clearly going to prom and wanting to wear a like a tiara, like a big princess dress, but being totally embarrassed. Like, what will people think of me? This is too crazy, you know? And I think this is a silly example. But one thing that I wrote in the book is like, go ahead and do it. Who cares? Laugh, have fun. Don't take yourself Mm. so seriously. Don't worry what other people think. And it's I'm not trying to say like you do you be who you are. I think what I'm trying to echo is what you said. You don't have to take yourself so seriously. It's okay. It will be okay. That's right. So I think it's an interesting thing to try to do. What would, because what we would tell ourselves back then is probably what we're feeling yeah, like we need to know yeah. now. And so uh, internalizing those a bit. Well, coming up next, uh, something we've been talking about a lot and, and we feel like it is important. We want to talk more about uh, what's going on at what went on at Mars Hill, what continues to go on with the podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We've got some uh, pastoral things to discuss next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, when the past comes back to haunt you, we're going to talk about that. And then we're joined by Tyler Huckabee, senior editor at Relevant Magazine. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so grateful that you're with us again today. Brian, I have a question for you. This is a hard one, okay? you got to think about this. All right. If someone from your past sort of showed up suddenly and they began to hold you accountable for something that you did in the past, how would you feel about that? Uh, you know, I think for me, it would depend on what it is and why they're coming at me. You know what I mean? Like, um, because we've talked before, uh, say they came at me and they were trying to tell my current church, you know what, you're not, he's not um, qualified to be a pastor. Well, we've talked before about 
how there are some things that disqualify people to be pastors, especially when there's no restoration yeah. that takes place. Yeah. It doesn't disqualify them from forgiveness right. or disqualify them from, um, you know, salvation or from being a Christ follower, but not everybody who says, I'm sorry, should get back in yes. the pulpit or get back in a leadership position. Yes. And so I do think if somebody were to be saying to my current elders, hey, you know what? I don't think uh, this has been dealt with properly. And I think you guys need to deal with it. While hard, I would want to hopefully say that's legitimate. Yes. Like that's legitimate. Now, if someone was just, you know, uh, you know, had a had a beef with me before and just wants to continue it and won't give it up. I'd, I'd have problems with that. Like eventually there's times to move on in life. But uh, if there were real concerns about character uh, and I know that's going to go into a story we're going to talk about here mm-hmm. in a minute. If there are real concerns about my character and my um, uh, worthiness isn't the right wrong, right word, but just uh, legitimacy Fitness of being whatever. a pastor. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think I would I would welcome that conversation. I think. How about you? Yeah, I. I mean, probably my ego would not be happy about it. Like that, I'll just put that on the table. But I think the reality is if there is unrepentant sin in my heart or if there is character um, flaws, and I don't just mean like character oddities, I mean like actual sinful things that I have not dealt with or I'm not aware of or I'm harming people and I have in the past and have never repented or made that right, I would want to know, like for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of my gospel witness, for the sake of the health of my church, I would want to know as painful and awful and heartbreaking as it would be. But I think it can be dangerous when, like you said, it's someone who maybe just has a bone to pick with you. They're mad because you like offended them personally. That's when it's a little bit different. So it's a line certainly that we have to walk carefully. But I bring the conversation up because Christianity Today uh, published an article. You know, you and I have talked a lot about the Mars Hill podcast, the rise and fall right. of Mars Hill. Uh, Mark Cosper, uh, Mike Cosper has been on the show. Um, the podcast is ultimately following the rise and fall of Mark Driscoll, who was the pastor, uh, one of the founding pastors at Mars Hill Church. And um, interestingly, some of his former elders have come together to call him to resign from his current church, Trinity Church, because folks are leaving Trinity now and raising familiar concerns, similar concerns Mm -hmm. that they did when he was at Mars Hill. Here's something that they said in their letter. We are troubled that he, that's Mark Driscoll, continues to be unrepentant despite the fact that these sins have been previously investigated, verified, and brought to his attention by his fellow elders prior to his abrupt resignation from Mars Hill. Um, Accordingly, we believe that Mark is presently unfit for serving the church in the office of pastor. I think there's a few reasons why this is interesting. I think it's Mm -hmm. interesting the power of media because because of the podcast, this has happened. That's right. And then I think it's interesting thinking about former elders talking to him about his current role. How do you how do you process that, Brian? Yeah, I think a lot you know what we've said is one of our problems with uh the Mark Driscoll story and how it's played out is he and I think this is probably going to come up in the podcast soon is that he, there was no like restoration or repentance. There was just I'm going to go start another church in Arizona. Right. And I think that makes this legitimate because most of the time, if you went to another church, you'd be like, why are these elders following him? You know, like, like let it go or let his current elders deal with it. 
Uh, but when there is unresolved issues and you see the same things going on, I think there is a legitimacy here that has to be uh, listened to. Do I think this is going to cause Mark Driscoll to go, oh, man, maybe I should? No, <laughs> no definitely not. not. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that especially considering it appears that there was lack of forgiveness and repentance and restoration, I think this is legitimate to for churches to wrestle with. Yeah, and I think it's a reminder, too, that though Driscoll is at his own church and may have repented privately, we're still part of a community of mm-hmm. believers. And so the reality is that uh, these elders are hearing from some of his church folks now that things haven't changed. I think in that way, because we're part of the global church and, the, and a Christian community, we do have the right to sort of speak into each other's lives when we're hearing things, especially someone who's so high profile like Driscoll. Um, yeah. Brian, uh, on a side note, I, I wanted to talk about part of the podcast this morning because I think there is something else really powerful about how social media changes things. And I wondered, have have you listened to the new episode that dropped this morning? No, I didn't know one dropped this yeah, morning. Yeah, there's a new one this morning about the brand. So we don't need to unpack the whole episode, but I want to play this. But we will. We will. Yes. We definitely will later this week. But I want to play you this clip because it is so interesting about the power of media. Let's go ahead and listen to this. I look back and I'm like, okay, who platformed the aggression algorithm of Facebook, right? That makes money off of conflict. This is Brian Zug. Since the mid-1990s, Brian has been working at the leading edge of technology and design on the internet. He first started building websites in 1995. And these days, he works in user experience and organizational change. He has a unique interest in the ethics of tech development and entrepreneurship. There's a lot of regret among those of us who built things like WordPress and CMSs and Twitter and Facebook. We were hopeful people and we didn't see how these things could be used for evil. For Brian, there's a very particular kind of regret. He discovered Mars Hill in 1999 after hearing about this church in Seattle with a website and a chat board. This was a real oddity at the time, particularly the unmoderated and sometimes unhinged conversations on the message board. When he moved to Seattle a little later, he ended up attending, and he met his wife, Jen, there, who was actually Mark's first administrative assistant. He began helping out where he could, including with the website. I'm the person that put the first MP3 on a, a Mars Hill site back in 2000. You know, I'm like, hey guys, have you heard of these MP3 things? We could put audio on the internet. Would that be amazing for Jesus? You know, but that grew into this thing that's happening at the same time where you can track those numbers. So you could see like, and it's almost like this really quick feedback loop that the internet brought and digital media brought where I can, I can make an aggression and then I can see my numbers go up. Oh, well, I just got a dopamine hit, right? And so the aggression becomes a justification for the ends. Okay, so this is what I'm talking about, the the good and the bad power of media. Because what this guy ultimately said is that as they saw algorithms um, go up, as they saw the church get more views, more likes, more watches, every time Driscoll was more and more aggressive, that began to justify his aggression Mm. because they were saying the gospel was going forward. And I think that tells you that, again, we see social media happening in two ways here. Because the podcast is going out and growing in popularity, 
in real life, elders are now calling Mark Driscoll to task at his current church. But what we also see is the danger that because in social media, they saw his sort of belligerent sermons get the more you know, grow in popularity, then they kept being belligerent. And so I I don't know, I think that's just interesting, like the way social media plays into our real life and plays into our pastoring. And I don't know how to really unpack it perfectly for our listeners. But I just think it's worth being mindful of that our words have power for good or for evil. And we have to be mindful of that. Absolutely. And, and aggression and anger are not fruits of the spirit yeah. that we go, well, that's working. So let's continue there. Like you got to you got to think hard and fast about yeah. your methodology, not just the results. That's exactly right. Well, we'll keep talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill as the weeks go on. We love listening to that podcast. And we're so glad that you're joining us today. Stick around. Next up, we're joined by Tyler Huckabee, senior editor at Relevant Magazine and co-host of the Cape Town podcast. Lots of good things to talk with Tyler about. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled to welcome back someone we consider friend of friend the show. Of the show. I think <laughs> he considers himself a friend of the show. It's Tyler Huckabee, the senior editor at Relevant Magazine, co-host of the Cape Town Podcast, a podcast I am growing to love especially as he unpacks all things Loki. Uh, Tyler, how are you doing today? Oh, yeah, I didn't. I, I did not realize that we had a new Cape Town podcast. <laughs> here. I, I don't know if we're going to be launching into to like superhero comic book chatter today, but I'm ready for it. I, I, I'm always prepared. You're always ready for it. Oh, yeah. You have a fan here. And I feel like I need like the T-shirts and all the merch. So I'm waiting for it. Uh, okay. Tyler, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Relevant or who you are, can you introduce yourself a little bit for us? Yes. I'm senior editor at Relevant Magazine. We cover the intersection of faith and pop culture. So, uh, so anything that's happening in the culture that veers into conversations around faith and Christianity, uh, that's what we try to cover over at Relevant. Mm-hmm. And Tyler, first of all, uh, if my co-host takes charge of this interview, you will be talking about superheroes. It will be coming. It will <laughs> that be, will be the only thing we'll talk about. <laughs> Always ready. Always ready. It's uh, like I, I could do a TED talk at the drop of the hat. Like, right there, <laughs> That's awesome. The street, drop it down. I got 10 minutes and be ready to go. There you go. There you go. Hey, as we said, you write so much good stuff at Relevant. So really, what when we bring you on, we're like, all right, we've got this collection of things that Tyler has written. And I'm obsessed a little bit over the last couple of weeks with this story of David Platt, McLean Bible Church, and all the craziness that's going on there. You wrote about it back on July 20th. Uh, but maybe people out there don't know the story. If you could give people a little bit of a uh, kind of a Reader's Digest version of that story and then why it's important and why it's getting so much pub right now. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. And, I, and there's a there's a lot of ins and outs to it. So I would encourage people, we've tried to cover it in some detail over Relative Magazine. I would encourage people to check out a report in there. But very, very briefly, uh, David Platt, who is a, a very well-known author, pastor, really gifted preacher, a gifted Christian leader, is a pastor with me in Bible Church in Washington, D.C., and over the course of what sounds like the last uh, few months, maybe even a year, uh, there has been an internal, a lot of internal strife 
in his church between a, a small, according to, according to Platt, a very small group of people who feel like the church's way of addressing certain issues, particularly issues around race, has started to veer into the social justice warrior, uh, critical race theory. A lot of these big boogeyman words that you hear thrown around in these conversations a lot. <laughs> right. Uh, and, that these, and that these conversations around justice are acting as sort of Trojan horses for a lot of secular, uh, even unbiblical or heretical sentiment. Uh, and that has made Platt, obviously, from the pulpit, defend his actions and defend a lot of the teaching for that, he's, uh, that other pastors in the church are doing. And this all came to a point when, and this is all according to David Platt and according to, to mm-hmm. a speech that he gave in his church, uh, a small group of agitators, some of them who are members of McLean Church, some of them who are not, uh, sort of hijacked a vote for several new elders to mm-hmm. the to the elder committee at the church and attempt to derail those elders from being part of the elder board because they did not they felt like their views would continue this sort of perceived liberal drift in the church mm-hmm. and they didn't want that to happen so they had to then do a second vote. Uh, and protect that one from the, I guess we call it voter fraud, another charged word right now. They have to do a second vote, and that is also, although that vote did successfully pass, the elders cleared that vote very overwhelmingly. That has also led to some new legal controversy around whether or not they have the rights to do that according to the church charter. Wow. And Tyler, I feel like kind of hearing you describe what's happening and reading some of the stories myself, this story feels like a microcosm mm-hmm. of what's happening in a lot of churches. Yeah. And um, from your perspective, I guess I wonder, this is a big question, but why is this happening? <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> Help us, Tyler. <laughs> oh, man, beats me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, not, I, I am trying to cover this because I do, I do think it's important because microcosm is exactly what it is. And this is happening at a very high profile level, uh, this what we're seeing with David Platt is, uh, in, in my mind, and there are other people who are who are talking about this better than I am, and I actually do have an article coming out about this in a few weeks that will cover this a little more in depth. But uh, you, I think that words, phrases like critical race theory, like social justice, are being used as a, to sort of mean things they don't actually mean mm-hmm. because we understand these phrases so poorly because critical race theory, it's an extremely complicated issue. It's a very niche realm of legal academia that's hard to understand. But uh, because people don't understand that very well, because it's a very uh, loosely understood term that has gotten a lot of provenance in the mainstream culture, people who can kind of use it to mean whatever they want, you know? So now it's become this shibboleth where people say critical race theory and your audience hears scary words like Marxism or socialism. uh, Mm -hmm. And these are things that are not really what critical race theory means or even necessarily has anything to do with. But if you can get people to hear critical race theory and think it means something else, then it can become a very powerful tool in this culture war, which uh, which ultimately and this is this is going to be sound sort of unkind. But I do believe it, I think, is ultimately meant to sort of keep the status quo in place and uh, and to hamstring these important conversations around race that we've had since Mm. the death of George Floyd. Yeah. Yeah. And Tyler, uh, kind of a hard question to to kind of look into the future. But uh, like you said, this is a bit of a microcosm. Do you think we're just going to see this in lots of churches now, lots of big churches, small churches, this kind of fracturing over 
things that have fractured us politically? Do you see churches are, are going to like increasingly fracture over these issues? I think that there is probably going to be, uh, I think the division that we're facing right now is probably going to continue for at least a few years, unfortunately, because it, it has become such a politicized and very lucrative issue. You know, people mm. have had a lot of success in stirring up these sorts of controversies. And there's a lot of, uh, honestly, there's a lot of money and, and position to be made here. But I also think that uh, what's being perceived, the reaction that's happening here is a reaction against very strong, very powerful, very effective, and in my opinion, very godly movements towards racial justice in the church. And I think the more effective those are, the stronger the backlash is going to be. Uh, so for a while, we're going to continue to see this, and I think it is, uh, I think it's very sad. I think we're losing a lot of really good people who would like to be part of a church, but don't want to be part of one that uh, is, is opposing racial justice, which is very important to younger generations. But I think as the, the you know, I, I think we're going to continue to march onward here. I, I think that uh, the, uh, the die has been cast for a better, brighter future for racial equality here in the U.S. So I do think that we'll have a, a few years of go ongoing strife and then hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to put a little bit of this behind us as we continue to move on as a society. Um, Tyler, you also wrote another article, and I don't mean to keep like, you know, banging the hammer on the same nail, but you said Christians stop using woke as an insult. And I think you kind of previously said this before, we're beginning to use terms like woke, like CRT, like socialism or Marxism or whatever, ultimately to not have important conversations. That's what it feels like is happening to me. Um, can, can you talk about for the Christian who might be listening, who actually is in that world and is tempted to call things woke at, to keep their own distance from the conversation, how would you advise them to maybe reframe things? Yeah, I think that my challenge, whenever you feel like you're using the word woke, especially as white people, I do think there's a difference in how white people tend to deploy the word woke and how black people, because it comes from a, a very black vernacular. And I think it's been appropriated by some white people uh, in a very different way. So I do, I am... In, this particular part of the conversation, I think, does need to be geared towards white people. And I would say that when you start to use the word woke, I would challenge you instead to be more specific and say what you mean. Or what, what are you actually trying to refer to? What is this conversation about? Is it about race? Is it about gender? Is it about issues of, around uh, a sexuality? Uh, these are all these are all very complicated deeply historical conversations that there's a lot of writing around, you know, so you can you can educate yourself and talk about these in-depth issues, which are important when we need to have these conversations. And I think woke is just used to flatten them all, you know, into, into one big sort of bucket, because when you flatten something, you can label it. And when you label it, you can just put it away and not have to think about it anymore. So my mm -hmm. challenge instead of woke, and, I, and this is a challenge to me, too, is to instead of using that word, uh, try to find what you actually mean and use use your words, your vocabulary to talk about it. That's good. I want to ask you about an article that you wrote recently called Don't Blame Your Lack of Self-Control on What She's Wearing. And um, I think the title says it all, but why don't you explain to us what that article is about? Um, in a nutshell, I feel like maybe once a year, usually around the summer months, for obvious reasons, this modesty conversation kind of creeps back up in Christian circles online and, and in the, and in the, the, I guess, the zeitgeist of, of social media discourse. 
And usually I sit it out because I just don't feel like I feel like there's too many men weighing in on the modesty thing anyway. And it's mm. sort of an odd fit for guys to be talking about this stuff. But the com- the tone of the conversation, uh, given some things like the there was a song from Matthew West called Modest is Hottest. They generated a lot of controversy. Uh, there was a, a pastor who went semi-viral for, for a pretty ugly slur around women. Uh, who wear what he perceives to be uh, who wear what he perceives to be immodest, and it felt like there was maybe some some guy talk that that could be beneficial here. So that's what spawned the article. Mm. Uh, and a lot of this comes around purity culture, right, Tyler? And uh, Aubrey and I were both youth pastors, and I remember having the purity conversation with our high school kids. And now I'm like, I don't know how I would frame it. How would you? Uh, tell youth pastors or parents who are talking to their kids and especially their sons, how do you have that purity conversation right now in a way that maybe you think would be more helpful? Yeah. And I want to be careful here. I'm as neither a youth pastor nor a parent and there's a lot, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things here that I feel like I am, uh, I'm, I'm ill-equipped to weigh in on, but I'll tell you what I, what I do feel very strongly is that this modesty conversation especially when we talk to men about it, uh, tends to take its eyes off of God and, and off of holiness and off of sanctification and put it back onto women. Women's bodies are inherently dangerous. That's how we think about them. We call, we call it every man's battle. And a battle implies an enemy. And, and the enemy, the obvious enemy here, is women and their bodies through no fault of their own. And, and there's nothing, it's a very dehumanizing way to think about this. There's nothing women can do about it. And there's really then nothing men can do about it. It's uh, it's an unending battle. It's an endless war. And, and I think that's an incredibly de-spiriting de- way of talking about this, that you can't control yourself. Women can't do anything about it. So you're just going to have to spend your eyes like, I remember this phrase "bounce the eyes" that I heard a lot when I was a kid. If you're, mm. if you find yourself like looking down a, a girl's shirt or something, bounce your eyes, and you just turn your bo- her body into a pinball game, and it's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I think that that's a, a terrible way to look at it. Uh, so what I argue in this article is that instead of thinking about it as as a battle, uh, I, I think that if you are struggling with dark thoughts when you see a woman who's dressed in something that you perceive to be immodest. The problem is you've already sort of sexualized women in your mind. You, you're, there's already a lack of respect there. And I think that instead of treating the symptom of, of like with, with lust, I think you need to go to the root, which is a lack of respect and a lack of understanding of the inherent worth and dignity of the women you're talking to, no matter mm-hmm. what they're wearing, no matter how they're dressed. And if you can start there, if you can focus the conversation on the on the divine imprint of God on every single woman in the world that is that is there and that is worth of dignity and respect and honor, then the the conversation around modesty really doesn't need to be that big of a deal because you've started out at a at the root core divine level instead of just trying to take out these little you know the the symptoms I suppose. I feel like just, you know, speaking as the woman in the room here, too, I have spent the majority of my life apologizing for even having a body, you know, and so I, I think this conversation is so important for both men and women to understand Mm -hmm. that like God has given us bodies. And that that's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And therefore, when we objectify, dehumanize, belittle the other, only sexualizing the other like that's dark that's dangerous that's evil and and the reality is 
men and women are attracted to each other. And so we can't pretend like that doesn't exist, but it doesn't have to be this thing where women become only like your sort of evil temptress or your enemy. I think this is a really important way to reframe the conversation. Tyler, I'm wondering if you've thought about how this plays out in the larger church, because I do think there's a connection between this and the reality that um, across the globe, really, women have not been empowered to a lot of positions of leadership in church. Have you thought about that at all? I do. I think that's a huge conversation and so important. It's all part of a much bigger conversation around gender and, uh, and egalitarianism mm-hmm. that uh, that is, is starting to happen more, I think. But I think that when we do... Uh, what we're seeing as the modesty conversation is part of a much bigger conversation around leadership, around gender equality. And I think that as long as we refuse to address those things, which we do as a church, we don't like to have those conversations, then we're going to, the modesty thing is going to keep coming up as well. And it's because we see women as sort of these, honestly, in some churches and many conversations, and I know they, I know most churches don't intend for it to be this way, but it does functionally end up being second class citizens within their own body of Christ. And I think that is wrong. And, uh, and it's another issue of, uh, uh, until we address that, the modesty conversation is going to keep happening. It's going to keep going poorly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So with our rest of our time, let me let you guys have some fun here. I'm so excited. Uh, Thanks, Brian. Your, I don't even know what question to ask. Tyler, how about this? Uh, your top two or three Marvel characters. How about that? Ooh. Are we going movies or, or the comp? What, what am I? Do I have parameters? Let's stick with movies because okay. this is where I'm not a hardcore fan because I'm not I, I don't sure, know sure, the sure. comic books well enough as I do the MCU. So let's stick with movies or shows if you feel like you want to add that into the canon. OK, OK. Well, my my favorite. And this isn't a hot take or anything, but he's been my favorite since I was a kid. And, and he was brought to life very, very well in the movies, I think, and, and couldn't have. I have zero complaints around how the movies depicted uh, Captain America as played yeah. by Chris Evans. Nice. He's, he's my guy. You know, he's, he's my guy when I was a kid and, and he's my guy now. And it's really difficult, I think, to make uh, a superhero out of like a patriotic flag waving. No, that, <laughs> on paper, that wouldn't work. And I thought it worked beautifully. They did it really, really nice. They so, did it well. Love that. Uh, I got to get, I've, I really do like, uh, I loved Black Panther. I'm, I'm Miss Chadwick Boseman, but we got yes. one really great movie, and that character was so special and so important. And I just loved living in America when that movie came out because everybody was so excited about it. And it was so much fun to see this kind of weird superhero who I knew who I who I knew who he was when I was a kid, um, but I had no idea that it ever become this cultural moment, which it really did. And then I'm gonna I'll go ahead and do a show. Uh, I would say. When I first heard that Marvel was doing TV shows, Loki was the one I was least interested in just because the character never really intrigued me all that much. And that show ended up being just great. Just what a, just a slam dunk. Yeah. I thought it was too. I thought it was fantastic. Okay. We only have 30 seconds here, Tyler, okay. but my oldest son would kill me if I didn't ask you who are your favorite villains from the MCU? Do you have two favorites? Okay. Favorite villains. Let's uh, off the dome. Uh, let's go. Recent, we have Agatha Harkness in the WandaVision show. <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. Loved Absolutely loved that. And then you got it. You got to I got to give it up to Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, he's Black my Panther. favorite for sure. Yeah, incredible, yep. just incredible, incredible. Yeah. 
we blame Agatha Harkness in our house for like most things that go wrong now. So the dishwasher breaks, it's Agatha's fault. So she's become part of our, our family ethos, honestly. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Tyler. We appreciate you being with us. Tyler Huckabee is a senior editor at Relevant Magazine. You can find um, all things that Tyler has written there. And we're so grateful that you always join us, Tyler, for the show. Thanks a lot, guys. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening. We are so glad that you are here with us today. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're sending you home on this Tuesday evening with a really, really cool story. But before we talk about it, Brian, I have another question for you. Tell me about your discipline. That might be a terrible word, but tell me about your <laughs> your Bible engagement or your Bible study, just personally. So not you're not preparing a sermon, you're not studying mm. for something. Just what is your personal relationship with the Bible like? <laughs> I, like I like how you put that. What is your personal relationship with the Bible like? Uh, for me, um, I like to read it in the morning. Uh, and so it, that is kind of the time of the day. This time of year, I love to read it outside. Oh, that's nice. Uh, and I have over the last, uh, just over the last two weeks or so, I have discovered uh, one of the Bible reading plans on uh, the YouVersion Bible app that has to, I don't know why I chose this one, uh, more just kind of some stuff going on in life and stuff, but it's kind of like mixed with a devotion about fear and mm. kind of worry. That's cool. Uh, and so I've been kind of using that as opposed to just going through my Bible, like, all right, now I'm going to read. But oftentimes I'll just pick a book and I'll read a chapter a day. And then kind of one of the something somebody told me early on that was important was also don't treat it like I have to finish this chapter today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Kind of chew on it. And if there's something the Lord brings mm -hmm. to mind, like you can end there and just kind of stay with it. And so I've enjoyed that devotional lately. I've enjoyed, I, I tend to read like again in the morning. Uh, it, once my day gets rolling, I, I, it's kind of lost. Yeah, it's kind of gone. Yeah. So that's me. How about you? Yeah, I also like to read in the morning. You know, I'm at a luxurious age where my I get up before my kids. That wasn't always the case. <laughs> yes. I would say any young moms listening, you just you just do you. Like it's okay. God will be there. It's okay. But I, you know, I get to wake up early now and have some quiet time in the morning and read my Bible. And that feels really special. And I like to journal through scripture. And mm -hmm. I I generally have read the Bible consecutively, not like annually, but just I start with Genesis, I read to Revelation, however long it takes, and then I start over. But I actually, in the middle of COVID, I found that that was just a, felt a little too... I don't know, it felt like too much. And so I just would mm. read the Psalms or something from the New Testament that I really connected with because I, I wanted the Bible engagement to feel, I don't know, meaningful and almost emotional in the middle of COVID. But then mm. I, I was in class, I'm just going to flex a little bit with Beth Moore last week. <laughs> and, you know, my friend Beth Moore. And um, she talked about how she reads the Bible consecutively. And I was like, oh, no, I got to go back. I got to get back to it. Beth Moore's doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> If, Beth, if it's good enough for <laughs> right. Beth Moore, it's good, it's good enough, enough for, me. for me. So I have just recently restarted in Genesis 1. But like you said, I'm going slowly. I'm just noting yeah. things that like stick out to me or what is the Holy Spirit saying? And then I'm offering God's words back as a prayer to him, just kind of as a way to try to engage, but not, you know, it's hard as a pastor. I think sometimes we can we can be reading scripture and then go, ooh, this would be a good sermon. And so it's very I'm true. Try, you know, 
we're human, right? So life is what it is. Realities are what they are. But I am trying to keep my personal devotion separate from my study for preparation, if that makes sense. Yeah, and totally. And what you said also, again, I, I'll highlight for me, it's about like, can I finish what I planned on doing? Mm. And there's some power to yeah. that, but that's not the point of scripture. Like, okay, I've, I've got to finish James chapter two right. today. And I, therefore, I'm going to read it just fast. And then I'm going to, you know, oh, my plan says get into Psalms. So then I have to read the one yeah. Psalm. I have to read it. Like there is something to the discipline and to the completion of the, of the, of the plan or what was out. But when that, um, when that takes over, when that's the priority, I really think you can miss out on on the way that God speaks mm-hmm. through his word. Like sometimes it's just two verses and you're like, I'm done. Yeah, like, that's I heard right from there. God. I, need I needed that. Right, right. And so I'd encourage people, don't don't think of it like, okay, this is what I committed to read today. Now I have to go with this. Like that's not the overall point. It's not it's not homework. Like, yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, I asked yeah. you that question, Brian, because I Christianity Today published this morning this incredible story. And I wanted people to hear this because it is so inspiring and encouraging. Here's the title of the article. Nine years, 782,000 words later. South Carolina woman completes handwritten Bible. <laughs> okay. That's unbelievable. Okay, so this is an amazing story, but Caroline Campbell, she spent nine years copying the entire Bible by hand. She's now 28 years old. She started in Genesis, worked her way all the way through Revelation. She used the 1973 New American Standard Bible for people who are interested in that. Um uh, her mom estimated that it's more than 10,000 pages. It's in 43 uh, binders, by the way. But here's what's really, really cool is that Caroline has Down syndrome. Yeah. And so um, part of this was she wants to inspire people with disabilities to learn to love the scripture. And I think it's a, a call ultimately for the entire church to um, be more connected to and aware of the uh, disabled population. But I think also it's a call to all of us. Like she is so engaged in scripture. I do think there's power in writing it out, journaling it, pausing to um, learn and to pray through it as she does. I mean, she probably knows the word of God better than a whole lot of people right now. Don't you think? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And another amazing part of this story at the beginning, we'd love to end with some mm-hmm. inspirational stories, right? Uh, it starts by talking about how his dad, how her dad uh, found uh, the, he was doing some spring cleaning and he found a stack of papers with her handwriting on them. He looked down and realized it was scripture. Uh, and then they talked and she decided she was going to do the same thing, but, but, or try to finish the whole amazing. thing. But what's amazing about it is that she didn't do this like, mom, dad, I'm going to copy the whole. But like, this was something between her and God. She mm. just started doing yeah. it. And it, his, her dad had just happened to find it. And there is such value, man, as an aside, Aubrey, I don't know, at my age and being always on my phone and my computer, I literally feel like I don't have the ability to write. <laughs> Seriously, that's what I'm thinking. Like, oh, my gosh. And so just the thought yeah. of writing, like what that does to your hand. And but like you said, I think the importance of this is this this girl has got to know scripture mm-hmm. so much more deeply than uh, th- than many of us. And and it just was done from such a sweet beginning 
like you said, this girl has down to such a sweet it's story. It's such for a sure. sweet story. There's another part of the story I think is really powerful. It's that her church got involved in this. The name of her church is Beloved Everybody. It's a community of people with and without intellectual, developmental, and other disabilities following Jesus and leading and participating all together, which I think is really, really cool. But the pastor of the church said that they're really proud of Caroline. She's a great testimony for the church and for the Lord. She's been an inspiration yeah. to so many. And then here's what's really cool. They had a celebration for her when she finished copying Revelation. Like the whole church they, came like together. They should. Right? <laughs> oh, I think it is absolutely such an inspiring inspiring oh it's so good so good well we hope that encourages you today wherever you are in your walk with the lord get in his word he speaks through it and whether you're journaling whether you're handwriting it out whether you're praying through god's word take some time to get back in the word of god especially if it's been a while or if you already do it to continue that pursuit of the word of god because that's one way powerfully that god speaks to us and we connect with him again you can find that article at christianitytoday.com love that story well i hope you feel encouraged today and we're so glad that you're here with us we hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m for brian from i'm aubrey sampson and you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life